social distancing and regulations on our school campuses, we've had to get really creative in how to minister to our mission field. And right now, as we count up last week, on average, we're reaching 650 athletes and coaches on school campuses during this time, which is about a third of what we normally do in the Chiha Valley. But we're just so grateful that we're able to have any consistent ministry with athletes and coaches and, and the student body. So I would just, uh, number one, thank you for partnering with us. Number two, please keep praying that the doors will continue to open uh, for us. I also just want to say uh, thank you for your continued prayers for a few things. We, um, we got to see five young men give their lives to Christ about three weeks ago at a FCA huddle out at White Plains High School, and they got baptized two weeks ago, and we were able to put into their hands athletes' Bibles full of commentary and study helps and the gospel message. And so we're just trusting God to just carry them through the, the new walk that they have with Jesus Christ and to stand firmly in the face of opposition um, from, their, from their peers. And then the last thing that I would do is, is ask you to pray about an opportunity that we have um, I think we're going to be the first FCA overnight camp or retreat since COVID hit in Chaco Springs, December 18th through the 20th. Um, I was just really committed not to stand idly by um, and see what I'm seeing in young people's lives on school campuses, discouragement, depression. We've even seen suicidal attempts among the people that we serve. And so we're going to have a, a camp December 18th to the 20th. If you're a student here or if you're the parent of a student and you would like to go to training camps, what we're calling it, Mitchell Dean is our speaker, one of my best friends in the ministry. Uh, Grant Harbin is going to be leading music. He's from Russia Fools. And it's just going to be a time to just get trained in the gospel of Jesus Christ for 100%, 100% commitment to the Lord. So I uh, would be ask you to be praying for that event for us. Now, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Last week, Corey asked the question, what is a missionary? And then he answered it by asking three more questions. I was a little bit skeptical at first, Corey, when you did that. But then when you asked those three questions and answered them, it was, it was great. He said, where do missionaries come from? And he said, they come from diverse churches who share the heart of God for the nations. That's where they come from. And then he asked the question, what do missionaries do? And he says, they faithfully proclaim the gospel in the midst of opposition. And then he asked one more question. He says, why do missionaries do what they do? And his answer was simple, because the Holy Spirit tells them to do it. But then the last statement, really, of, of Corey's message last week was this, is that we have a missionary God. We have a God who is zealous to reach people all over the world to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. It's like John Piper said so many years ago, that missions exist because worship doesn't. And we have a God who is zealous to, to go on mission so that people will worship authentically himself. Now, with that being said, before we read our text today, um, it has been said 
that you really can't understand a person until you've walked a mile in his or her shoes. You can't understand their fears. You can't understand their way of life. You can't understand so much about them unless you've been in their shoes. And so for maybe three or four minutes right now, I want us to hop in our DeLorean time machine powered by a flux capacitor, and I want us to go back a couple of thousand years and about 6,000 miles. And I want us to walk in a few people's shoes here for a moment. First person I want you to kind of get in the sandals of is an ordinary Jewish person. 2,000 years ago, 6,000 miles away, an ordinary Jewish person. You, you're religious, you identify with the people of God, you go to, you go to Sabbath worship every day, uh, every Sabbath day at the synagogue, you're faithful to attend to the dietary laws and restrictions that exist, you've, you've memorized Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, the law of God and the Ten Commandments and the great Shema, you can, you can recite them. You attend to the, to the worship every single Sabbath. You, you um, make sure you keep your distance from the Gentiles that you, you need to. But you kind of have this gnawing kind of concern deep down inside that you realize that like your life doesn't measure up to what you read in the scriptures. And you look at those laws and you see that you, you know they represent a holy God, but you're just not there. You, you know kind of what goes on in your heart and in your mind. But you try to cover that up because you know as a good Jew, you want to live a very clean, good life. And you're just hoping that your life will measure up to the standard that God has set good enough for him to, to be pleased with you. But there's that deep down gnawing that something's just not quite good enough. All right, I want you to put yourself in another person's shoes, a God-fearer. That's what they were called back in the day. They were Gentiles who, who saw the God of the Scriptures and said, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And so here you are, you're a Gentile. But you've tried out paganism, you've tried out the worship of the Roman emperor, you've tried out these different Greek gods, and, and you realize the emptiness of those things. But then when you hear the, the law of God, the, the God of Israel read, something resonates in your heart that, that this is right, this is true, this, is, this has something like eternal to it and, and authoritative about it. And so you have asked the Jews if you could come in and participate. And so you, you go to synagogue every, every Sabbath. And, and you don't have the same rights as the Jews do, but they let you listen in, they let you participate, and, and when you, you hear the word read and the songs sang and the psalms recited, you, you're just like, yeah, yes, I, I believe that's right. And you're almost considering becoming a proselyte. A proselyte is that next step where you're going to get baptized into the Jewish people. You're going to be, if you're a male, you're going to be circumcised. And then you're going to go offer a sacrifice at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem so that you can be grafted in as a full-fledged proselyte of the Jewish people. Because you think that maybe while you'll be a second-class citizen 
in the people of Israel, being a second-class citizen among those people is better than being no citizen of heaven at all. All right. Third person I want you to walk in the shoes of is just your run-of-the-mill, ordinary Gentile. You're just, uh, you're just, you're part of the Roman Empire. You're, you, you have a sense of pride about you because you, you're the greatest empire in the world. You, you've got a sense of allegiance to your area, your town. You might even have an allegiance to a particular God that's in, that's in your city. But the reality is this. One thing that you know is that you can't stand the Jews. And they can't stand you. You're like from the other side of the tracks, so to speak. But what you see is even though you're on the other side of the tracks and you're from there, what you can see from the Jews is this, is that they're smug and, and they're arrogant. At least you're real, like you're real folk. You know, you're good folk, they're not. They're, they're, they're snobby, they're, they're arrogant. And so as much as they look down at you, you, you despise them. But one thing that you can see about them, or at least some of them, is this, is you see the fraudulence and the hypocrisy of their leaders. You can see straight through it. They want to act like they're all that, they're righteous and holy men, but you know enough about their leaders and you know enough about their secret lives that you won't have anything to do with those men and that group of religious people because you see it as hypocritical. Final set of sandals I want you to stand in is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He, he, here he is, he's a, as far as zeal, he's a persecutor of the church. As far as holiness, he's, according to the law, he's blameless. He's so blameless and he's so zealous that anybody who would stand up against the Old Testament scriptures and the God of Israel, he hates. Not only does he hate, he persecutes. Not only does he persecute, he murders. But he's proud of it because he knows that he's doing God and God's people a service. But as you stand in his shoes one day, you're very zealous to get up early and to go up to Damascus because you know that there are a group of Christians who are saying that this Jesus is the Son of God, and you know that's not true, and so you get up early, you get everything ready, and you're headed up to Damascus, and you're on that way, and all of a sudden, this blinding light shines. So blinding, it paralyzes you, and you go to the ground, and all of a sudden, you hear these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you say back, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And at that moment, everything that you stood for comes crumbling down around you. Your whole frame of life and worldview is destroyed in one moment. But then he lifts you up and guides you into the town. A guy named Ananias begins to teach you and tell you what you need to do. A group of Christians come around you. You get baptized into the church of the Savior that you used to persecute. And you learn 
the scriptures from a Christocentric set of, of lens so that when you read Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55 and Habakkuk 1 and 2, all of a sudden you see that in fact Jesus is the Savior. I've, the one I've been persecuting, I now need to worship. That's you. That, that, you're Paul. Now with that being said, you've got an ordinary Jew, earnest, frustrated, guilty. you got an earnest God-fearer. You want to identify with the Jews because you, uh, you see something. It's, it might fall a little short, but you see something that, that other religions don't have. And you've got your full-on Gentile, and you've got the Apostle Paul. Look down at Acts chapter 13. Adam, you can put up on the screen kind of the map if we can get there. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark have left Antioch over here on the east side. They've sailed down to Cyprus. They carried out their ministry that Corey exposed to us uh, last Sunday. They've now sailed north up to Perga. They are going to walk and travel up to Antioch, a different Antioch of Pisidia, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. That's what we're about to read. So we'll begin in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. This is the word of the living God. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. That is, men of Israel and you God-fearers. Listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David. To be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, 
But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whom I am unworthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. He fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed justified from everything from which you could not be freed, justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Well, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that is, God-fearers and proselytes, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. 
Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, and you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their districts. But they shook off the dust from their feet against us and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the reading of his word. It is inerrant, infallible, powerful to save and sanctify. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's so much here. What we see by way of of progression is we see the setting the sermon, and the reaction. That if, you, if you're just looking at it, you step away, you see the setting, the sermon, and the reaction. Clearly, Luke, as he writes this account, is placing significance on the sermon. I mean, this is the very first sermon that we see Paul preach, and it's the very first sermon that we see Paul preach to the people of Israel, primarily. And so it's it really is important for us to see, well, what, what, what do we see Paul focusing on? What do we see him doing? And so let me just say a couple of things about the setting. If you look down at, chapter, at verse 13 and, and, and following a little bit there, we see that, that they go to the synagogue. The synagogue is the place of learning and the place of worship for Jews and proselytes and God-fearers in particular towns. And then we see that kind of the activity in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. Everybody's gathered there to uh, sing psalms, to recite scriptures, not only from the, the Torah, the first five books, but also from the psalms and from the prophets. And so the normal course of things is that they'll sing some psalms, they'll have a reading from uh, the, the book of Moses, they'll have a reading from the psalms, and then they'll have a reading from the prophets. And, and then, after that, what will happen, either the resident rabbi or a visiting rabbi, rabbi will give a word of encouragement. That, that word encouragement simply means to, to give courage to someone by way of standing for something. And so they write a note to Paul and Barnabas and, and say, you know, they don't know a lot about these men, but they could tell that they are Jews and they have a rabbinical standing. And so they said, would one of you want to share the word of encouragement? Well, we know a lot about Paul now. Like, we've read his 13 letters. We've read through the book of Acts. Like, we know that he's going to have a word of encouragement. So, so that, that, that's kind of the setting. But then we see the sermon. And the sermon really has three parts to it. The three parts of the sermon, if you're taking notes, are really the anticipation of the Savior, the action of the Savior, and then the appeal to trust in the Savior. Okay, so the anticipation, the action, and the appeal. And, and if you look down at the passage, what you'll, you'll, you'll see 
is that there is a very Jewish nature to Paul's sermon, to his, to his lesson. And, and what you'll find is that he's, he's seeking to appeal to these, these Jewish people, these proselytes, these God-fearers, on the basis of the word of God and the activity of God's, of God's rescuing and history of rescuing with the, with the Jewish people for all of their history. If you just look down as he's talking about this anticipation of this coming Messiah, he, he, he um, relates to them by way of referencing all the Jewish heroes. Notice he references Abraham and Moses and uh, Samuel and Saul and David. Like these are like the big guns of the Jewish faith and he references them all and appeals to them as he's anticipating how Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of everything that they weren't and everything that they looked toward. Notice that he uses Jewish titles to appeal to them as, as his brothers. He calls them men of Israel, brothers, children of, of the Lord. Like he's, a, he's, he's appealing to them on the basis of, of how much they're related to one another and how, the, how same they are. He references the Jewish city, Jerusalem, you know, the place that houses the Holy Temple. He references the Jewish scriptures multiple times. He goes to the prophets. He goes to the Psalms. He goes to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. And then if you'll look down at the kind of the very beginning when he's talking about God, he actually gives God a Jewish and Israelite title because he says the God of this people, Israel. And then I would like for you to look down again at the beginning of his sermon because I want, you to I want you to see how he emphasizes the activity of God, what God does. Notice this, God chose our fathers, God made them great, God led them out, God put up with them. God destroyed the nations in Canaan. God gave them the land and inheritance. God gave them judges. God provided Samuel. God gave them Saul. God removed Saul. God raised up David. God has brought to us David's offspring. God sent John the Baptist. Saul of Tarsus is standing up in this synagogue and he is saying to them, these are all the things that our great God has done, but he's doing it. To build to a pinnacle point. And he's going to say the same God who has been doing this work for all of these hundreds and hundreds of years is bringing it to a culmination, a pinnacle point. And that pinnacle point is actually Golgotha. That pinnacle point is the very person and work of Jesus who is the offspring of David, who you love, who you trust, who you follow, who you emulate. See how he's making that connection. Now, when he does that, we see the activity of the Messiah, kind of in that middle section there. And, and when you see that, he appeals to the, to the Old Testament. Like he appeals to the Old Testament in it, and he preaches the Jewish scriptures and then points them to Christ. He references the royal psalm, Psalm 2. And then it's a psalm that you and I, when we read Psalm 2 and when we sing it, we, we see that we find its fulfillment and its identity in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does with Psalm 2. 
He then references Isaiah, and he ultimately represents Habakkuk, and he he references Psalm 1610, where where he's saying, listen, y'all love David. You sing the Psalms of David. You read the books that are about David, and you see a man after God's own heart. But what you've got to understand is that while David was a good king, even a great king, even a God-honoring king, he was buried. He was dead. And we could go dig up the remnants of his bones today because he saw corruption. But what you need to know is that the offspring of David, the son of David, while he died, he also is risen from the dead, never to see corruption. That was really the pinnacle point of Paul's message. But I want want you to keep your eyes down about two-thirds of the way down in the message because the, the title of this message that I'm preaching to, to you today is Let It Be Known to You. And it comes from this statement. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, just enter with me for a moment. Enter with me again the sandals of the ordinary Jewish worshiper, the God-fearer, the Gentile. Okay, enter in those shoes. And and what, what you've been thinking all these years is that you're almost there, but you're not quite there. You still feel conviction over your sin and you're not sure what to do about it because you know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove your sins and you're just like, what do I do? And then this guy comes in from Tarsus, whoever he is, and he stands up and he says, you need to know this, that you can be freed, you can be justified, you can be delivered from your sins and it's nothing that you do, it's everything that the Messiah, the offspring of David, has done for you on your behalf. You can be free. And so Saul knows that not everybody's going to really like this message, especially the, the leaders, the rulers. And so he adds in there at the end, he says, beware, lest what's said in the prophets should come about for you. He calls them scoffers. Look, scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work you won't believe, even if somebody tells you. Now, if we see the, re- the reaction, um, the reaction goes kind of like this. The, the ordinary Jewish worshipers and the God-fearers, the two, first two people that we put ourselves in their shoes, when, when Paul is preaching, their heart is resonating. When Paul is declaring the scriptures and that Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures, their heart is like, that's it. That's the missing link. That's who I need. I want to be freed. I want to be justified. And so they follow Paul and Barnabas out and they ask more questions. And they inquire, and Paul and Barnabas spend time with them, and and Paul and Barnabas give them more of the truth and equip them and love them carefully, and they get so excited about it that some of them become disciples, some of them become followers of Jesus throughout that week. And they're so excited that they go and tell their their family members and their best friends and their neighbors about these guys who come in and have rocked the synagogue. And and then they're saying, we want to hear more from him on the Sabbath. And so by the time that the next Sabbath comes, y'all, 
we also see the reaction of the religious rulers because when they gather, the whole city is there. I mean, we're, we're talking thousands of people. So I'm surely spilling outside, and the rulers become jealous. And the text tells us that they tried to contradict by slander that, that which Paul and Barnabas were sharing. So you see their reaction. The ruler's reaction is hostility and hatred and persecution of Paul and Barnabas. But then you see the reaction of just your ordinary Gentile. You see, there's something inside of all of us. And unless you're an ethnic Jew, you're a Gentile as well. There's something inside of us that is really searching for freedom. We're searching for, to be saved. We're searching to have liberation. If you, if you just listen to music, and I don't care what era of music, what you'll find in, in themes of music is deliverance. Whether it's deliverance through uh, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, through love, whether it's deliverance of, 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 a, of a leader, but we're always searching to be delivered from the, from the difficulty, hardship, or just the ugliness of our own lives. And when, and when, these people who heard the message in the synagogue on that Saturday went back and told the Gentiles of Antioch of Pisidia about, hey, there's a message that you need to hear. They flocked to it, and they believed it as well. That's the reaction that you see. But, of course, Paul and Barnabas are persecuted. They're, they're scoffed at. They're essentially run out of town. But a couple of things that I want to take note of before we land the plane here. Two things, really. Notice that in verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you look at any version of the English Bible, it reads practically exactly that. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because they were divinely appointed to believe. And then some chapters later, Paul is doing ministry and God, the Holy Spirit, actually says, hey, there, you will find much opposition there, but I have people in that city. Now, those people in that city had not yet come to believe, but God was saying, I've appointed people in that city to believe. So I just want to make a point here that Luke makes a theological statement that every Christian needs to understand. It's good news that it's not up to you to get people to believe, and it's good news that God has already appointed people to believe, that all you have to do is go and proclaim, and God will save whom he's appointed. All right, now, the second thing I want you to notice is that Paul and Barnabas are good followers of Jesus because when those Jewish leaders scoffed at them and despised them and blasphemed them to others, they take their sandals and they knock the dust off of their feet, which is to say we're knocking every bit of defilement off of our feet. The defilement of your unbelief, the defilement of your rejection of Jesus, the defilement of us coming to you with the offer of hope and you rejecting it, and we're going to another city. That's judgment that they're following in the very footsteps of Jesus. And I just want to say, just before you, if there is anybody here, who has yet to give your life to Christ and you are undecided, I want you to know that Jesus is a savior, that he has come to live the perfect life that you're supposed to live. He has died the death that you deserve to die, that he was buried in the grave and on the third day he defeated death and hell and sin on your account. 
And he has ascended into heaven right now, mediating for people like me and you, that all we have to do is confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that he is Lord and that he's risen from the dead and we will be saved. And I just want you to know it is there for you. You can trust in him, you can believe him, and he will deliver you to eternal life. Okay. Adam, are we able to get those slides up? All right, so this is what I want us to do. Let me see where I am on time here. Oh, yeah, we're good. All right, so um, we, um, what we see is something very practical about missionaries and about um, Christians who are Acts 1-8 Christians. You remember how Acts 1-8 is the theme of of really the book of Acts where Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus charges the, the disciples with before he ascends into glory. All right, I want you to see, these are really 10 marks of what Paul and Barnabas demonstrate, but it's really 10 marks of what every missionary is to demonstrate and every testifying, witnessing Christian can demonstrate. And so let's just go to those. One, the first slide is, they go to the people who need Jesus. I kept that map up there during the sermon because you saw the length to which Paul and Barnabas went to get to Antioch of Pisidia. They go to the people who need Jesus. And so there's a sense in which every missionary is a going missionary. They're on their way somewhere. They're, they're going to a place and to a people. All right. The second uh, aspect is they engage them where they are. Of course, Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue. They're familiar with the synagogue. They're familiar with Jewish people. They're familiar with the lingo. They know the, they know the deal. And so they go there and engage those people where they are. And that's really important. You know, so much of Christianity in America over the last 40 years has been like the field of dreams theology, which build it and they will come. Build it and they will come. And, you know, there were people who came when they built big, big megachurches and everything, but generally the principle of the missionary calling and the Christian calling is to actually go where people are and to be with them and engage them in relationship. Third thing we see, speak the gospel to them from the scriptures. Speak the gospel to them from the scriptures because that's your power. That, that's where you get your, your source of authority. Um... Let me, let me see if I can just say it very plainly. If you want to be a soul-winning Christian, if you want to be an effective missionary, then you need really two things. You need to be full of the Holy Spirit through prayer and full of the Word of God through memorizing, meditating, reading Scripture. If you've got the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, and you've got the Spirit himself yielded to him through prayer, then you can march into any scenario and know that you possess the power of God. So I just encourage you to do that. Do that. Be yielded to the Spirit and be yielded to the Word. So they speak the gospel to them. They boldly offer them salvation in Christ. And I say boldly offer because Paul had great boldness. Luke had great boldness. The text indicates that, that they were bold and confidence, confident in their declaration. While there might have been a sense of, oh man, what are we getting ourselves into they still went forward with it because they knew that they represented the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Next, be available to the people who need Jesus for relationship and questions. And I think that's 
just to speak very practically to us today, y'all, in our context, it's real easy because of our phones, because of our nice homes, because of our neighborhoods, because of ordering groceries on Amazon.com um, and Walmart, picking them up. We don't really go to the marketplace. We don't have the meeting spots. We don't have the, and so we, we've got to be creative and imaginative and selfless in this area. Be available to people for relationship and questions. Because it's amazing the kind of conversations that you can have over a cup of coffee. It's amazing the kind of questions that you can entertain when all the noise on the outside is out and it's just you and some other people. And so you have to be available to them. And then you equip them with the truth of the word of God. And by that, it's literally, you're, you're helping. I, I know this is how I was one. Not only did I, I was listening to preaching. But I was, I was also in a car with a couple of different men over a period of five or ten years. And, and I'm asking questions and they're answering them. They're posing questions to me and waiting on an answer. I'll never forget being in Montgomery, Alabama and Mark Jaskin were stopped at a red light right by Montgomery Mall. And he says, Ryan, do you think that people are naturally good or evil? I said, Mark, that's a ridiculous question. We're good. I mean, it's like, you know, we're, we're good and, and just the world turns us bad. And he just said, Really? And then he didn't say anything else, and I didn't either. And that stuck with me for a week. And it started gnawing at my heart. I said, hey, a week later, I kind of picked up the conversation. You know, when you asked me that, why did you ask me that? And then what do you know? He starts sharing with me about the truth of the depravity of man and the need for a Savior. Okay, equip them with the truth of the Word of God. Let's go next. Persevere in the work when you're hated and targeted. Like anybody can preach Jesus when it's easy to preach Jesus and everybody's saying amen. The question is, is what do you do when they start targeting you, okay? All right, uh, let's go next. Empower new disciples to take the gospel to their peers. Empower new disciples to take the gospel to their peers. That's what we see in the text. Like how does the whole city come and listen to Paul and Barnabas preach? It's not because Paul and Barnabas are out knocking on every door in Antioch and the surrounding region. It's because Paul and Barnabas empowered the people who become followers of Jesus and say, hey, you need to go tell. You need to go tell. You need to go broadcast this to your neighbors and let them decide about Jesus. And so they bring them. You know, there's this, this beautiful thing about getting new believers, zealous believers, engaged in the ministry. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas do. I think we're maybe one more. Uh, no, two more. Celebrate the grace of God at work in people's lives. That's one reason why I opened up today's message telling you about the five young men who came to Christ about three weeks ago. Because, number one, that's a miracle. Number two, it's worth celebrating. Sometimes we just get so busy doing the work of the Lord and doing the things that we do, we never actually stop and pause and say, the grace of God is at work here. He's working, he's active, he's saving, he's redeeming, he's sanctifying. And we need to just stop and say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, he's at work. And then finally, keep on keeping on because God is always working. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do there well i did have so much more i wanted to say to y'all this morning um but let's let's just pause for a moment and let's pray and uh and thank the lord for this example this missionary example of the apostle paul and barnabas
Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of all your promises. We thank you that you have freed us from the guilt of our sin. We thank you that you have opened up the door to us Gentiles and allowed us to come in. And we thank you that we are justified, we are declared righteous, not by any work of our own, but by the work of your blessed Son, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We worship you today. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. That's, that's a tough act to follow right there, amen? Um, and if you don't get anything else from Ryan's sermon, the power is in the word. The power is in the message. Some, were, some came to Christ, some were hardened. It's always been that way. 